We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna is out, Gillisley's in, Felton is the fullback, Gillisley takes the handoff, dancing toward the goal line, touchdown Bills! Nine! It makes a big play. Right, move past Jim Kelly on the all-time this the handoff goes to McCoy, McCoy into the end zone, touchdown Bills! To go inside the 10, it's O'Leary in motion. They head it up to McCoy, he's got some blockers, low to the ground, toward the end zone, touchdown Buffalo! Touchdown for McCoy, another rushing touchdown for the Bills. That is a franchise record for a season of rushing touchdowns for the Buffalo Bills. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Gear. It's my producer, Chris Krueger. And that was Tom McCarthy from CBS Sports calling the multiple rushing touchdowns that took place on Sunday. God, that felt good. Chris, you were at the game with me. What was it like being there freezing your ass off in an almost empty stadium? It was great because you said that the Browns were going to beat us after we decided to go for a field goal on the first drive of the game. You, that, that, you're damn right I did. I thought it was horseshit. I thought it was Bush League. I think if you have a team like the Browns and you have an opportunity to drive, for that, you go for it on fourth down. Who cares? They're the Browns. You should just steamroll them. Just absolutely go in there and push them over. And instead, we used our first possession to kick a field goal, and they came right back down the field and answered us. I, I, I was honestly surprised how quickly we took over the game from that point, because when I saw the way they came down the field and answered, I expected a fight. I really did. I thought that they maybe could keep this thing interesting at least into the third quarter. I was surprised with how many times you said fuck with a family of six behind us. Eh, they were all over the age of 12. They're going to hear it eventually anyway. <laughs> and it's not that severe. They weren't directly behind me. <laughs> they eventually moved down, be probably because of you. Eh, I'm not shocked. It was the Browns game. There was nobody there. I, regr- I regret nothing. I apologize for nothing. As you shouldn't. Uh, so, 
We got a lot to talk about this week, and I'm going to get right into it, guys. We have a packed show. It's the holiday edition of the uh, Rock Pile Report, and we're going to start it off as we always do with the Bills News Update. First and foremost, I want to start this podcast off on a high note. The Bills win over the Browns on Sunday marked the franchise's 400th win. I mean, that, that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, good for us. It's a milestone. Cheers. I'll drink to that. Slauncha. You know what's pretty impressive? 17 years and no playoffs. <laughs> oh, see, you tr- Chris, this is why we can't have nice things. This is why we can't have nice things. We can never have nice things. <laughs> oh, so in other news, ESPN's been talking new Buffalo Bills quarterback. In an article written by Ryan Talbot of UpstateNewYork.com, and he was discussing earlier today the fact that John Clayton from ESPN has put it in print. You know, it's one of those ESPN Insider articles that you can't read unless you pay for it, which I'm not about to do. But from what I've read, the gist of the article is that the Bills are almost certain to move on from Tyrod Taylor at the end of the season. But in his place, Clayton has projected to start next season with Mike Glennon under center. Let's let's take a moment and let that sink in. Glennon, I will say this. Mike Glennon was the quarterback that I wanted the year that we drafted EJ Manuel. I I watched all the combine stuff. I read everything there was to read. I saw a big, tall pocket passer who's got good mechanics. His only limitations are the fact that he's not a great athlete. You know, he's got no, his speed is up there with Ryan Mallett's and Drew Bledsoe's. That's that's about what you're getting out of Mike Glennon as far as athleticism within the pocket. Great. No running. <laughs> so it made it. But, but knowing what I knew about Glennon and seeing what I had seen out of E.J. Manuel, it made it that much harder to watch EJ, us draft E.J. Manuel and then watch him struggle and eventually end up as a backup quarterback, soon to be a street free agent. But with Glennon. Is our only option to quarterback? I mean, Glennon, really? Is that is 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 he going to be the savior of this franchise, Mike Glennon? No, that would if he signed here or however we got him, <clears throat> that'd be another stopgap like Tyrod, Kelly Holcomb, Drew Bledsoe, <laughs> Trent Edwards. I mean, I, I just don't know if I buy it. I mean, he doesn't have much. Like I said, nothing really in the way of mobility. But he's got solid arm strength, and I mean his his touchdown to interception ratio is thirty to fifteen. The kid can sling the football, and now he's stuck on a depth chart that he has no hope of. I mean, he's never going to beat out Jameis Winston for that starting job. I didn't even know he was still with Tampa. Yeah, they tried to. I, the the rumor is is that they tried to shop him a little bit, but their asking price was way too high. And team said, "Hey, if we're interested, we'll just wait a year, and then he'll be out there on the street because you're not going to resign him. It's too much money to commit to a guy who's never going to get to start." So. Then the Buffalo News, Jay Skursky, put out an article later this morning talking about 10 quarterbacks that he thought could be the starting quarterback for the Buffalo Bills next year in the event that this prediction by uh, John Clayton comes true. And I got to tell you, I don't know how I feel about this list. I mean, let's take a look at it, Chris. Do you have it up in front of you? No. Okay. Tony Romo. Yes, please. Now. Oh, I'm going to go in the bathroom for a second. Tony Romo. Is currently under contract. Next season, he will still be under contract unless the Cowboys cut him. His salary will be $14 million. Are you going to pay Tony Romo $14 million 
and have no viable backup on your roster for him. Yes. Someone who's proven he can't stay healthy or play a full season. Yes. He's better than anybody on our roster. Okay. Move on. Jay Cutler. Yes, please. Jay Cutler is coming off of season-ending labrum surgery to his throwing shoulder. He's a gunslinger. He throws the ball down the field. That's what I want. Why can't I have that? Why? I want that. How do you know that he's going to be able to throw it down the field like that? Even with a bum shoulder, he throws better than Tyrod. <laughs> Chris is just coming with heat tonight. Next up on the list, Kirk Cousins. Yes. Sign me up. Now. Oh, okay. Realistically, do you think that this team can afford Kirk Cousins? I have no idea what the cap situation looks like. Exactly. I'm speaking straight from a talent perspective. Okay. Give me all three of these quarterbacks you okay, named over Tyrod. But see, Chris, I'm talking to the adults out there who understand how salary caps work and the fact that every NFL team is constricted by them. I don't know what the Cousins' contract deal is. I know they can franchise him again, right? They could, they could franchise him for the rest of his life if they wanted to, if they want to pay him for it. The fact is, is that I watched last night's football game. The game I saw wasn't all that impressive from Kirk Cousins. He makes some throws that you're like, oh, that guy, that, that guy's amazing. And then sometimes he makes throws that you're just like, where the hell were you going with that football? I, I, he seems to me like a guy who's going to get paid a lot more than his production's ever going to be able to catch up with, which is why I think the Redskins franchised him in the first place. Next up on the list, Blake Bortles. Yes, please. <laughs> oh, he just got his coach fired. He, I say he because he's on a team full of talent, a defense that was hamstrung most of the season because of his ridiculous number of turnovers. Okay? Hey, you're going from a hey, no, no, no. What, I can turn your mic down, bro. <laughs> Why don't you shut up? What kind of coach is Gus Bradley? An unemployed coach. What is what is his deal when it comes to football? I don't know. What does he know? I don't know because he didn't spend enough time in the NFL for me to see it. It's called defense. Yeah. Okay. That's so, so he defense. doesn't know anything about offense. So so you <laughs> so the next the next coach should be an offensive head coach. Okay, but let's say there is a next coach. The next coach is going to have his pick of quarterbacks. Do you, as a new head coach, do you want? the quarterback who regressed so badly from one season to the next that a season that looked like you had padded your defense up and had enough offensive weapons that you could make a run. People were calling them a dark horse to make the playoffs this year or at least challenge for the division. I said that. Everyone who did. No, I know I said that if you go back to our June-July podcast. Because nobody foresaw Blake Bortles' play falling apart the way it did. The struggles of that offense fall almost directly on his shoulders along with that offensive line. We saw him play here in Buffalo, and he didn't look awful. He showed off some mobility. He showed the fact that he can make decisions with the football, and he didn't turn it over here. And that's why they were still in the football game. But he didn't do that consistently. He was always turning the ball over. I would say unequivocally no to Blake Bortles. I do not want him anywhere near my football team. I want him all all through my football team. (laughs) The next option on the list, Jimmy Garoppolo. Yes, please. Okay. He's cheap. You could fit him in under the cap. What are the Patriots going to want for him? A couple of firsts that I'm not willing to give up. <laughs> exactly. And are, do you think they'd even entertain the idea of trading him within the, con- within the conference or the division? No, that's not going to happen. No. 
So we can look at that name and say, hey, maybe Jimmy, maybe Jimmy G's a viable option someday, but that's not going to be next season. Well, was, how did we get – was Bledsoe a trade or did he just Bledsoe sign was here? A tra- Bledsoe was a trade. Which I can't believe you – see, you sit over here and yell about things, but you don't know anything. We tra- no, I don't. We I traded a first I tell every. I tell it all the time. On the, I don't know football the way you do. But it's okay because you're representing Joe Everyman, and I like that about you. Especially yes. with your lo- old-school Labatt trucker hat. And <laughs> yes. it's For me, all I rely on is the eye test. So far – Every quarterback you named on this list, I would have over Tyrod. And that's I'm not speaking to their contract at all. Talent-wise, they're all better than Tyrod. Okay. And then also, you have to understand that Jimmy Garoppolo, you're not going to trade for him unless you're, willing, unless you're able to work out a contract extension. You just can't do it. You're not going to trade anything significant, which is what it would take, for a guy who maybe you can franchise, or maybe he just forces your hand and you have to let him walk. You're not going to do that. So no. I, I feel like there's just too many unknowns there. No. So you can entertain it. It's a great idea, and it's good for people to talk about on the radio and hear on podcasts. But in reality, I don't think he's a viable option either. No, because he's not going to lead. The Patriots aren't going to let him walk. Here's where the list gets funny. Sam Bradford. Sam Bradford will more than likely be available next season. Yes. You would. But it would take a trade. What? What would you be willing? Because depending on Teddy Bridgewater's health, that Vikings team is going to need a certain quarterback. I would trade a fourth or fourth to a seventh. And you think that the Vikings are going to walk away from the only quarterback capable of starting on the roster for a fourth-round pick? You never know. You don't know about Bridgewater. Yeah, so, again, probably not. And Bradford is not going to want to be a backup. Then A.J. McCarron. Now, fuck Alabama. I don't want that guy near my football team. No, I'll, I'll say this. As a guy who loves Alabama and watched A.J. McCarron win us titles, I will tell you that he is the epitome of a game manager. He is not a – I do not believe he's a starting caliber quarterback. I just don't believe it. I, I don't, No, I don't want him anywhere near my football team. The guy can make some nice throws when he has to, but for the most part, he needs an elite defense in order to keep him in things. I mean, look at he, – he got the Bengals to within a field goal of winning a playoff game. Barely. By the skin of their teeth. And I would say that their team last year was way more talented than their team this season. Or the previous season. He got them close, but he's not the quarterback who's going to seal the deal for you. And they have an entrenched starter. So Andy Dalton, A.J. McCarron's a luxury for them. He's going to be available out there. I would bring him in for a backup competition. You know, if he wants to be my number two and ride pine, that's good enough for me, I guess. But I don't want him anywhere near my football team. Landry Jones, Landry Jones of the, the currently the Pittsburgh Steelers. No, thank you. No, he hasn't proven he can win win games at the NFL level. He's had he's been a, a backup for years, years and years. Still doesn't seem anything more than a marginal backup. I mean, that's not. And then to be backup quarterback, it takes talent. You know, you can't be completely talentless and be a backup quarterback in the NFL. Because as you've seen, injuries happen. Guys have to come in out of nowhere and start games. But he just doesn't. He's not a guy with all the weapons that offense has. The fact that he's done as poorly when he's had to play. I just don't see it. And then Ryan Fitzpatrick rounds out the list. Already had him. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye now. <laughs> don't want him anywhere near my football team. Or you could just slide Geno Smith in there and have the same conversation. I'll knock his ass out. <laughs> 
You're going to give him the IK? Yeah. So the fact is that they're in a weak quarterback market. There's not a single, you know, there is no perfect option when it comes to quarterbacks and free agencies anymore. When it comes to free agency in the current day NFL, when a team gets a good quarterback, they don't let them go. They may squabble over contracts. They may posture. They may do some of the stuff like what Washington's doing, where they franchise the guy and make him play the season under the tag. The last time that this happened that I can remember was Drew Brees and Dante Culpepper. Mm-hmm. That's the last time yeah. I can remember quarterbacks being on the market. No, and so that's my point. If there's quarterbacks available, whether it's via trade, whether it's on the free agent market, there's a reason that they're available because there's only 32, jo- 32 of these jobs. And I'd say right now you've got about you've got two or three guys who you can call elite. And you can say that there's probably another 10 guys who you would take every week without question as, hey, this is going to be my guy. And then you've got, well, what does that leave? Another 20 teams who are all just kind of searching. They think they have an answer. They don't know. And they're just looking for it. There's a reason that these guys in that kind of an environment are all going to be out there and all going to be available. So every one of them represents a risk. Well, I would ask, what's wrong with Cardale? Well, that's... Would he be ready... With another training camp. Well, and see, that's the question. We don't know. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens in training camp. Maybe he comes out and he's awesome. Maybe he comes out and he's terrible. But now speaking, you know, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is there's not a ton of these guys who I view as an upgrade in the sense that for the money I'm going to have to pay and the contract that I'm going to have to commit to and what it does to my salary cap, for all of the things that I throw at Tyrod, I don't know how many more of these guys are an actual upgrade for my situation. I don't. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens on that front. Speaking of getting replaced, for weeks now, people with NFL connections such as Adam Schefter, Ian Rappaport, multiple members of the local Buffalo media, they've all been reporting that Rex Ryan is under the gun and could be fired. And apparently, even winning football games can't get that kind of talk to disappear. Now, WGR 550 reporter Sal Capaccio claims that these reports are pretty premature. But the fact remains, it's everywhere. It's a constant. Every press conference, every, you know, every post-game interview, it gets brought up. I, I mean, it's a topic of discussion and it's a narrative that just won't go away. So it almost makes it feel like it's a foregone conclusion. And these guys cannot leave it alone. I mean, this is what Rex had to say about it. Can I say that I never heard about it until you just said it, or is that going to be another week-long discussion? Because I never did, and I really don't care. Because I can tell you this. Here's what we all have in common. Everybody in here, nobody knows what my future is. A lot of you don't know what your future is either. So to me, it's, uh, you know, I just prepare the uh, team the best of my ability, and, and that's what I'm going to do. Rex Ryan post-game press conference on Sunday buffalobills.com okay so for anyone who follows the rock bell report on twitter you know you already know that depending on how much i've had to drink or depending on just how absurd i think whatever i just watched happen on the football field is like the time when Le'Veon bell took off for 20 something yards because three of our players when they snapped the ball weren't looking at the line of scrimmage okay i've i've made some calls for coaching changes i have whether it's defensive coordinator, whether it's position coaches, whether it's you know whether it's a special teams mistake that I ask, hey, how can, uh, why are you making the choices you're making? Why are you putting these guys in these positions? 
you're right. I've called for changes because it's some because you can see it from a ten thousand yard view. You can see something needs to be done differently. Things here need to change. But I, I mean, a lot of my comments are coming from just the simple frustration that this team has talent. Okay, this may be the most talented roster we've had, bar, barring injuries. One of the most talented rosters we've had in years. You know, you picture all of these teams throughout the last 17 years of no playoffs. Some of those teams were an embarrassment when you look at who we were rolling out there as a starter. This team finally has talent. We don't have a lot of depth, and this season exposed that. But it just seems that our team routinely underachieves when it comes to some of the most basic tenets of football. Some of the most basic stuff, like knowing where you're supposed to be pre-snap on defense. Having twelve men, uh, having not having twelve men on the field, not having ten men on the field, getting eleven guys, being where you're supposed to be, and knowing the play call. That's not rocket science. That's football. That's basic football shit that you do. You start doing when you're eight years old and you first get a helmet and you start running around out there and playing. That's the stuff they teach you. So to watch our team not be able to do it, I can completely understand. Why people would be upset and would want to change? It's it's been like that. I think over the last seventeen years that people have been saying that it's like every two years, uh, not doing anything, fire him. Okay, so we bring a new coach in the off season. If we lose week one next year, then he should be fired. Well, and so this is my point. Of all these things that I want to change, is firing Rex Ryan really the answer? No. Okay, well, let's let's take a look at this for argument's sake. I've got a list, pros and cons. Follow me here. The pros to firing Rex Ryan. A new head coach might be able to step in and fix the communication issues. I mean, think about it. For last season, we were talking about this stuff. And they came into the offseason talking about, oh, we're going to simplify the defense. And we're going to get guys to where they need to be. We're going to... You know, we're going to work these guys in the playbook. We're going to keep everyone on the same page. They even brought in Ed Reed to the coaching staff because they thought it would help the communication in the backfield. Our defense still isn't communicating properly, and we're not executing because of it. Another another pro. In 2015, our team went 8-8, eight and eight, but Rex only posted three wins over teams with winning records at the end of the season. So far in 2016, we only have one win over a team that has a winning record right now. And that was over the Bradyless Patriots. The seven teams we've beaten have a combined 29 wins. And if you take away the Patriot win, that that total drops to 17 combined wins for the six teams that we've beaten. That, that, that If you look at it from that direction, that would just serve to justify, you know, kind of, further this narrative that Rex cannot find ways to get his team prepared to play against good football teams. What about what I how about what I tweeted out or retweeted actually from Mary Kay Cabot a post game comment from Joe Thomas, offensive lineman for the Browns, on the Rex Ryan coaching situation, and I quote Joe Thomas, if you're not going to give a coach four years, don't hire him. Okay, well, that sounds an awful lot like you're making an argument for him, and we're talking about reasons why you should. Fire? Rex? No. For a team with a number of developmental quarterbacks in the roster, Rex has not proven over the course of his career that he can develop young quarterbacks. Can you argue that point? Yes. 
Okay, give me an example of a young quarterback that Rex Ryan took under his wing and re- kind of fostered his growth and development as a professional football player. Well, to I'm, where he to where he grew to a serviceable level, and he is now an adequate NFL starter. My well, here's my problem with a lot of quarterbacks that come out mm-hmm. from college. This is my problem. They come out too early. Sanchez, thirteen. What he played thirteen games and then came out, and the Jets took him. He wasn't even ready. Okay, Geno Smith. Was he a senior? When did he come out? Was he a junior? Junior, I believe. Yeah, should have stayed in school. <laughs> Okay, so now it's the player's fault. It's not the fact that you have a coach who's surrounded by Doesn't want that money. Okay, what about Tyrod Taylor? Tyrod Taylor's not... Tyrod Taylor spent four years in the NFL. He was a six-round pick. He's trash. (laughs) I've said he's trash this whole time. Chris, most of your arguments that you've made tonight don't hold water. But it's okay. I'm going to let you continue to think them. The fact is, is now, you know, Tyrod... There's a growing sentiment among the fan base that Tyrod Taylor has not grown into the quarterback... He needs to be for this team to take that next step and win games it has to and compete at an NFL level. So the question is this. If we're going to go out and spend the draft capital or we're going to go out into free agency and try to pick up a young guy like Mike Glennon or a Jimmy Garoppolo or anyone else who might need more time to grow, do we trust Rex Ryan to be the guy to bring him along? Because everything that he's done in his career speaks to the contrary of that. He needs to leave the offense to the offensive coordinator. Okay. No matter how many times he's fired as OC. I mean, I guess the, the last thing here is just frustration from the fan base. Okay, Another pro. A defense that appeared poised to win looked like if it could just get a competent offense. You remember Kyle, the Kyle Orton-led Buffalo Bills? Every game was a field goal festival. And yet our defense kept us in most of those games. So everyone said, okay, well, with a new quarterback and with a, you know, a, you know, new coach, Sean McCoy, how could we lose? How could we lose? Our offense is finally going to score some points. And then the defense fell apart the moment he took it over. Wasn't the, uh, that's supposed to be his specialty, right? So again, well, that's another change? check mark did on we... the list of pros behind keeping a coach like Rex Ryan on your staff. When we went from Schwartz to Virgil, was that? Do we say stay in the same base? No, not at all. No, with okay, Schwartz so we were a, four, a straight up four three defense. Okay, now then, we've transitioned to a three four defense with a completely di- with a completely different scheme. Players that need to have a completely different skill set. It's it's not it's night and day. That's like another re- another reason. If you fire Rex and then you bring in another coach. Does he bring in a defensive coordinator that's a 4-3? And then we don't have the players that are capable of a 4-3. I mean, think about Aaron Williams as a football player. The guy has seen so much turnover throughout the course of his career, and he has never shied away from his disdain for constant turnover at the head, you know, at the most important positions, you know, head coach and defensive coordinator, the two that most directly impact his job. He's seen a number of different D coordinators over the course of his his career. Thurman. What what year did we draft him? Let's I, Google Google machine. Google machine. Tell me when we drafted Aaron Williams. Wasn't like he was second round pick out of Texas. Yeah, second round pick out of Texas to originally play cornerback. What year was that? Well, he's obviously had Petten. He's had Schwartz. He's had Dennis Thurman. 
He's had via the media Rob Ryan. Okay, so since two, okay, so he was drafted in 2011. Wanstead. In, in 2011, Aaron Williams got drafted by the Buffalo Bills. During that time period, he's had you just hit the head on, on some of them. Pettin, no Pettin, yep. Mike Pettin is his D coordinator. Schwartz, D, Schwartz, Dave Wanstead. Um, oh, who was the other guy? Um, Did you he, Donnie Henderson? No, not Donnie Henderson. He came from the. All I know is he came from the uh, Dolphins, and now he works for Minnesota. The fact is, and now and now you've got Dennis Thurman, Rob Ryan. He's had to report to so many different people and gotten so many different schemes and ideologies thrown at him. He he has brought it up multiple times in the past. He hates the idea of continually turning things over because you never learn anything. You spend so much time transitioning, you end up wasting years of some of these players' careers. I mean, it's just not it's not good for player morale, and none of them like it, which is important to team chemistry. Another con as to why you don't want to go ahead and fire Rex Ryan. George Edwards. George Edwards, everybody, during the Ryan Fitzpatrick era. That was his first DC, 2011. Another one of the cons. With a 9-7 and seven finish to the season, Rex Ryan could post not only his first winning, se- winning record since 2010, but will also have done so in a season where his roster was absolutely decimated by injuries from start to finish. I feel like we're injured almost every year, excessively. Well, I know. Excessively. I know, and that's a whole different argument in and of itself. Some of you out there are going to call that a cop-out. Here's what I know. According to mangameslost.com, a site I subscribe to that helps me follow injury news, injury trends, things of that nature, the Bills are still fifth in the NFL in games lost because players have been put on the IR this season. That's 189 total games got lost because of players that should have been playing that are now on the IR. Out of the teams ahead of us on that list, Baltimore, New Orleans, Chicago, and San Diego. Baltimore is the only one with a winning record. There's only one team that's been as injured as we've been all season that has a winning record. That sounds like with a lot of injuries that we have that... Maybe we've been winning with our depth. Does that maybe that speaks that that we might have a good general manager? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Who, who knows? I mean, if you consider all of the, and then if you consider the positions, the specific positions that were affected by injury, you had Shady in that Miami game. He wasn't a hundred percent, and it was a game that if we had continued to keep the, you know, if we could, had continued to keep our foot on the gas pedal, and find a way to get that really churn out some yards in that running game late, get our defense some rest, who's to say we don't hang on to win that football game? But we didn't. We didn't have him. You know, he retweaked that hamstring, and then he missed the Patriots game altogether. And you saw how that went. Then you, you linebackers, we lost Reggie Ragland, our second-round draft pick. Cornerback, Roby's missed time. Um, I, I mean, you've Kevon Seymour has had to come in and try to play because guys have been dinged up. Guys have missed time. Safety, we have safety this season exposed the fact that we have no depth at safety. None. As soon as Aaron, Aaron Williams was lost and we weren't doing stellar when he was here. But as soon as he went down, you could see that there was a sharp drop off in talent at that position. And then even Blanton went down. Wide receiver, defensive line. Guys have missed games. Across this roster, who play vital positions for that defense and on offense. 
I mean, Tyrod Taylor, I'm not going to make excuses for the guy, but he's been throwing to guys that we had to go out and pick up off the street. That's not, that's not a good thing. <laughs> not many guys are going to survive unless you're an elite talent at quarterback or a top tier quarterback. You're not going to be able to perform at your best under those circumstances. And as a coach, it's hard to come up with a game plan when you're put in a position like that. I mean, each in and of each one of these injuries in and of themselves wouldn't appear to be crippling, but to get all of them at one time, I'm sorry, it's just the the team can't find consistency when you don't have any of the players that you brought to training camp that you envisioned having on your roster, and that's not 100% on the coach. The coach has zero control over that. And then one of the one of the final cons here, considering the injury related obstacles and the quarterback situation, the question becomes what other successful winning coach would take that position? Let's take a look at the Cleveland Browns. Since 1999 to 2000, the Browns have had nine different head coaches. In that time frame, they failed to secure a franchise quarterback or put together any, you know, any kind of talent on defense that could sustain a mediocre offense. You have to have that. In the NFL. I mean, think about who the Seahawks were before they found Russell Wilson. And even in Russell Wilson's first couple seasons, he was a guy who could keep them in games and could make a lot of progress, but ultimately he needed that elite defense to put them over the top and make them a Super Bowl contender because they didn't have a very good offense at that point because he hadn't grown into that role yet. But Pete Carroll found a way to build that defense, and that's what saved them. Because they've been mediocre to terrible for years. The Browns, on the other hand, failed to do it. Now, their coaches, you've got guys like Romeo Cornell, Shermer, Chudzinski, Mangini, Mike Pettin. All of those guys were either coordinators who hadn't yet had a shot at being a head coach. And I feel like when you're a coordinator who gets offered a head coaching position, even though it may not be your dream position, that opportunity may never come around again. So you almost have to take it. So in this instance, all of these coordinators were stepping up to the plate to try to be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Yeah. Or they were guys like uh, Mangini who just flamed out somewhere else. And because they were the biggest name on the market, went to the Browns because the Browns threw the most money at them. I, <laughs> I mean, you look at the, the last four, the last four, Shermer, Chudzinski, Petten, and Mangini. None of them lasted more than two seasons. That's two years they were expected to gather the type of talent it takes to make their schemes work, completely and successfully install a playbook, find a quarterback who can win them games. Two years. I thought they had it with Manziel. <laughs> Everyone did. I mean, you, you're my friend Bob Kateris, friend of the, one of my good buddies, he loved Johnny Manziel. He thought that that pick was going to take them over the top. So did Skip Bayless. <laughs> but my point here is two seasons, okay? Every single one of those coaches only got two years to try to, try to change the culture, of the, uh, take a losing team and change the culture, install a winning game plan, and assemble all the talent they need to carry out that game plan. They only got two years to do it. 
their record during that four-year time span was 57 and 133. That's pathetic. So maybe that's a cautionary tale. Firing your coach after two seasons, hoping to simply catch someone new who steps in and solves all of your problems isn't the answer. For as many fans might get drunk and bitch on social media, myself included, okay, I'll wear that. The fact is that our team has made strides in the last few years. I mean, the Marone era. That was the first time that we were able to dig out of the basement in the AFC East. Six straight years we finished in fourth place until the Marone era. And then he quit. And then he quit. He quit because he thought that there'd be a bigger, better job. Because in his mind, and I'm sure his agent was telling him, you were able to take the Bills and make them relevant. You made the Bills 9-7 and seven just out of the playoffs. Yeah. So there's someone out there will give you a job because clearly they can see what a good head coach you are. Rex Ryan stepped in and took us to 8-8. Eight and eight. So my, I guess what I'm trying to say here is, is that we are on the upswing, even though people don't feel like it. And I know it's hard. With 17 years staring you in the face, it's hard to feel like this team is moving in the right direction. But think about six. Think about where we've come from. Six straight years of being last place in our own division, bottom of the bottom of the NFL. Never bad enough to grab a great quarterback, but never good enough to really compete. We're moving in a we're moving in a good direction. We're close. Not we're not close enough. We're not where we're we're not where we need to be. And I'm not going to kid myself into thinking that this season's going to end on some you know high note. That I haven't felt before. Nine and seven. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is that if we can keep growing organically, keep bringing in talent, stay the course, figure out your quarterback position, but don't blow the whole thing up. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe that's how you find lasting success here in Buffalo and finally get us back on track to win consistently. I don't know how it's all going to play out. But the next few weeks are going to be interesting, and I just know that I don't want to end up like the Browns. Yes, because we <laughs> kicked their ass. And that brings us to our preview of the battle for Lake Erie. Bills versus Browns, everybody. As we always do, we're going to start off with stats of the game. LaShawn McCoy, 91 first half yards, 169 total with two touchdowns. The Browns offense... 107 yards rushing, 196 yards passing, and one touchdown. Charles Clay, seven catches on seven targets, 79 yards and a touchdown. Tyrod Taylor, 17 to 25, 174, one touchdown, 49 yards rushing. The Bills defense, 269 yards allowed, two fumbles recovered, five sacks. I mean, it was we, we just took them to the woodshed. After their first drive, they struggled to move the ball for the rest of the day. As we should. It's the freaking Browns. Well, absolutely, which makes my first point, the first thing I want to talk about in the game recap, that much more disappointing, the empty stadium. Guys, for those of you who don't know, Chris and I went to the game together for only the second time this season. Why don't we, why don't we reference how that happened? So <laughs> my buddy had a free ticket. Right up until the day, day of the game. And then found out that he could go. 
So he called me and he said, hey, you know, I know you gave your ticket to your buddy, but I'm going to go. So I need my ticket back. So I felt bad and I called Chris and I said, Chris, you know, I feel, I feel terrible about doing this, but I got to take my ticket back. And because I don't do anything on the weekends, I'm at home. <laughs> and I was like, well, let me jump on the computer. He jumped on StubHub and within, I think it was less than three minutes from the time I called you to the time, like, to the time when you had another ticket. I found a ticket right next to Drew. Right in our section, directly next to me, with surcharges, he paid $18. Best 18, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know about best 18. <laughs> I don't know. Even knowing how many unsold tickets there were for that game, I was totally unprepared for how empty that place was going to be. I mean, the upper decks, there was no one there. There was no one there. And it was. I think that that's why my profanity was such a big deal, because usually when there's more people, no one can hear me. <laughs> Here, you can hear one lone jackass dropping an F-bomb in the stands. Well... Standing in front of a family of six. Okay, they were, you you make it sound like there was women and children crying in the background. That's not the case. No. You're handing it up for the listeners. Well, I mean, <laughs> you dropped so I cannot tell you how many f bombs you dropped in that opening drive when we kicked a field goal. It's like, dude, it's three nothing and. Twelve minutes to go in the first. Because I don't want to watch my team kick field goals to the Browns. I want to watch us go for it every fourth down. You know why? Because screw them. Because screw them. You're the Browns. You're not going to beat me. If I'm in, if I'm inside your thirty and it's fourth down, I'm going for it. Why? Because screw you. I'm not the Cleveland Browns. I've won a football game this season. Yeah, and as expected, we beat the shit out of them. That's why we're the reigning champions of Lake Erie. I mean, I can understand why the stadium was so empty. I mean, the weather, the crap matchup. <laughs> the highlights of my day were the W, the drunk 22-year-old kids at the end of the aisle, some of whom got escorted out of the game for just being too drunk to exist. I mean, the one... <laughs> I remember when I had my first beer. <laughs> there was a whole group of them that were just couldn't figure out where they needed to sit, couldn't find a seat, were sitting on the stairs instead of in a seat. Eventually, the cops came and wrangled a bunch of them out of there. It was hilarious. And then dancing with this little kid behind me to the shout song, you know, you could tell he was in a funk. He was in a bad mood. He was cold. We scored, and I got him. You know, I got him to smile at least. The kid laughed. I don't know if he was laughing with me or at me at that point, but it doesn't matter. The fact is, is that kid, that kid who was miserable as hell, got a laugh out of the afternoon. So as far as the play goes, Lashawn McCoy proved again. I mean, the the, the guy is our V twelve. Okay, he's the engine that just makes this offense drive. I don't know. I kind of like Kiko Alonso. Oh, God, I hate you. <laughs> so Sunday, again, just you watch him play, and it was a day that I, I walked out of there feeling just this sense of, I don't even know what to call it. I think that I'm getting to watch. He's so good. <clears throat> I'm getting to watch the best running back that I'll ever get to see with my own two eyes. I was too young. You know, Thurman Thomas, he played here. I was seven, eight. Yeah. You, I you might have... First- I didn't go to my first football game until I was 13, 14. Ooh, I saw him play. I didn't get to see Thurman. So I'm looking at this game and I'm watching LaShawn McCoy. And that's when it's starting to dawn on me that I might be watching the best running back I'll ever get to see with my own two eyes in a Bills uniform. I mean, it's incredible. 153 yards rushing, but he makes it look routine. You know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't look difficult for him. The way he cuts and the way he just finds open creases in the defense. It's it's just a thing of beauty to watch. I mean, his creativity, his vision, that burst he has when he gets to when he gets to the second level, and then it's almost like a gallop, and all of a sudden he finds another speed that guys can't 
catch, and then he runs out of bounds. I know. I love watching how he avoids monster collisions and just gets out of bounds to save the wear and tear on his body. It's incredible. I mean, I, I honestly believe that he may go down as the best Bills running back outside of Thurman. And I guess OJ, if we're still counting him, considering you know the whole stabbing thing. Yeah, he murdered people. <laughs> Although I guess I shouldn't say anything because I, <laughs> depending on how the day goes in traffic, I want to murder people too. So. Oh, speaking of which, the commute to the stadium. Did anybody else get into a car wreck? Because I saw a lot of them on our way in there. I saw icy roads, cars spun off the road. Like, what the hell? Does everyone in Buffalo forget how to drive? There was a lot of black ice on side streets. I drove past your traffic, your <laughs> light, because I like got in the turning lane, and I put on the brakes, and I was like, oh, I'm sliding. I'll just go to the next street and take a left. <laughs> Well, whatever it was, Buffalo, learn how to friggin' drive. One of my other takeaways from the game, vintage Kyle Williams. Okay, I, the guy is old, but he is just all heart. You watch him play. This is a guy who earlier this week couldn't practice and was laying on the floor just trying to stretch his back out because he was in that much discomfort. But God damn it, if he didn't show up and decide to just Eat their offensive line alive. He finished with a sack and a half. He played 71% of all available snaps. And it didn't matter whether it was against the run or the pass. Double teamed or not, he was making plays across the line. Unblockable. It's incredible to watch that guy play like that. I mean, he's the epitome of guts. Just toughness. He's it. It, (laughs) I say, it's, it's a little disappointing with the way that he's played. And what we talked about kind of leading into the season this year, like, hey, at the end of the year, Kyle Williams might be a cap casualty and could get cut. I don't know. I, 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 the way he's played this year, like. He's still got it. That's the thing. He still has still got it. it. I don't know how he, I, I don't know how, but he fights through everything. He fights through adversity. The guy, does, the guy doesn't quit. God bless him. You know, for anyone out there who's interested, if you're a big Kyle Williams fan, Jerry Sullivan wrote a piece about Williams this week in the Buffalo News. I read it, and I teared up a little bit. I'm going to put a link to it in our podcast description. If you guys are a fan of his, I strongly suggest you go and read it. And then, well, we're sticking to the line play. Cyrus Quanjo comes through for us again. Now, we took him in the second round, and the first few seasons of his career have been anything but promising. <laughs> what was The one position coach in training camp called him Venus DeMilo. The statue with no arms. <laughs> and he got just, I mean, he was constantly just getting bagged on by everybody who was watching training camp. Everyone who was watching it, coaches included. So his failure to develop is the reason that we had to go out and get Jordan Mills to play tackle for us last season. Because they didn't trust Quanjo to go out there and play tackle. Isn't he only better on one side because of his knees? Well, and that that's a part of it. Knee, his knee injury, well, his kind of a degenerative knee condition, but also just his mechanics. He's more suited. He always played left tackle in college. Always played left tackle for Alabama. Now, at the onset of 2016, I don't know. Just you, you started to see it in training camp, especially after um, Cordy Glenn went down with that high ankle sprain. You and I were actually at that training camp practice when it happened. Service Quanjo started, and 
starting with the preseason games, you could see he didn't look like the same player that we'd seen for the last couple of years. He started to look like he was a little more sure of himself. He wasn't as, he wasn't as leaky in his pass protection. He still hadn't figured out the run portion of it, but you could see that he was putting together the bones of, you know, hey, he understands it now. Well, I'll say this. Sunday's game showcased why he was the 44th overall pick in that draft when we took him in the second round. He finished Sunday as our fourth highest graded player, according to Pro Football Focus. And he was absolutely instrumental. 34 of Shady's rushing yards came when running behind him. And the Brandon Tate 30-yard run, again, he was a huge part of that. If you go back and watch the tape, Groy and Miller pull to the left side. And they get out into the second level to block linebackers and make sure that there's no safeties coming down to stop Brandon Tate. Quanjo comes back and seals off his man perfectly to stop any kind of backside pursuit that might take place, which lets Brandon Tate get out past the line of scrimmage and out there into the secondary for extra yardage. I mean, that that block right there is the play that you expect out of a guy with his level of talent, or at least the level of talent we thought he had when we drafted him. Combine that with the other times when he's been put into duty this season— I absolutely think that this guy is growing into that role, and I'm excited to see what he can continue to grow into. I mean, he looks like a good player. It it took him a while, but it looks like he's putting it together, which is huge for us considering we're a team that needs to build depth. I mean, Sunday's performance, I I could rave about Quanjo all whole. It's the homer in me. I love the guy. I watched him play in college. I, I loved watching him play on Sunday. It was fantastic. And then you got Charles Clay. Charles Clay was absolutely solid. I mean, that, that's the first time I've seen him look like the player we thought we were getting when we signed him to that big contract. I mean, Chris, what do you think? That's a great signing by Whaley. Poor judgment on her coaching staff because they don't use Chuck Clay. And when they use him, he becomes a hero of the week. <laughs> Chris isn't wrong. We're going to finish up here with the Hero and Zero of the Week, and the hero, I, I had to give it to Chuck Clay. Because they're winners. Winners get to do what they want. I mean, Chuck Clay was responsible for catching just under half of all Tyrod's passing yards in the day. He couldn't be covered by anyone on the defense, and he caught every single one of his targets. I mean, some of them were hard. Some of them, he was guys were making contact with him, and he still found a way to corral the ball in and come down with it. Even his touchdown catch wasn't an accurately thrown ball by Tyrod. He just made a great he made he took a great angle to the ball and made sure he caught it. Yeah, it was that was hard for us. That was in our end zone. Yep. And that was hard to I, I didn't know if he had it. Mm-hmm. Just well, live watching it live. I didn't know if he had it. No, it was a crazy catch, but you know what? He found a way to make it. Because he's athletic. <laughs> it's it's refreshing to see that out of this guy, and it give again, it gives me hope. You know, yeah, it's against the Browns, but the fact is, is that you're talking about a guy that we're paying a ton of money. Okay, if they're not going to cut him and just eat the cap hit, if they're going to keep him around, I'm I'm going to want to see them feature him in our game plan more like they did on Sunday because he was the most targeted receiver on the field, including Sammy Watkins, including Lashawn McCoy, who routinely lead our team in targets. They went in there with a game plan. It was Charles Clay, and they executed it perfectly. And that came, that had a lot to do with just Chuck coming through with a huge day. And then the zero of the week 
That award goes to the asshole who fell asleep on the bleachers next to us. You blew it! So you remember those amateur 22-year-olds I mentioned early on in the show? Uh, Not only were two of their groups removed by the police for simply just being too drunk. Just too drunk. They, They were weaving. They couldn't speak. It was hilarious to watch them. And then the cops were trying to ask them routine questions, and I, I, I died laughing at it because they couldn't answer. During two-minute warning, the, the dude that fell asleep was like, hey, man, I bet you 10 bucks the Bills win. Dude, the game started. <laughs> ask me that before the game. And then at halftime, this guy just lays down on a freezing cold bleacher bench and falls asleep. And then his buddies woke him up. And then he stood up because we're, we're in row seven. And then he's just like leaning towards six. And his buddies are like, whoa. And they hold him up. And then he falls back to eight. And then they <laughs> shove him back to six. And then he just grabbed a bunch of bleacher again and fell asleep. And then everybody, their friends, his friends were like, oh, it's the third quarter. And then he just like, ah, this guy fell asleep, not once, not twice, but on three separate occasions, three separate occasions. This kid fell asleep while laying on the bleachers. I took a couple of snap. I took some Snapchats and sent it to my friends. I'm like, hey, look, I'm at a Bills game and this guy's sleeping. That's how empty the stadium was. But that's also how drunk these kids were. And I think that if it was any other game, they would have been kicked out a long time before that. But I, so I don't know if it was just morbid curiosity on behalf of the staff there. I don't know what it is, but this kid wearing nothing but some thin Zubaz sweatpants, a pair of Timberland boots, and a shitty flimsy jacket took like a, I would say collectively probably a 45-minute nap on the bleachers in the middle of a Bills game. Yep, and there is a photo on Twitter at Rockpile Report. Check it out. That makes you the zero of the week. <laughs> oh, so, moving on, AFC East Roundup. Not a whole lot to talk about this week because, uh, in all honesty, I got home oh, what, and I was the... in such a good mood that I didn't want to watch the Patriots game because oh. I knew how that was going to end. Oh, a win and then they're in the playoffs is fucking usual. Yeah, I don't want to watch it. that. So I didn't. I spared myself. I spared myself that and just didn't watch the game. And then the Dolphins and Jets played each other on Saturday night in a game which, by all accounts... Wasn't really a game, and I'm really glad I didn't go out of my way to watch it. I I didn't have the, the you know, I was in a good mood. I wasn't going to waste my time watching the Dolphins also win. So I didn't do any research on this game, but here to help us talk about it is Dolphins podcaster and blogger, Travis Wingfield. I'm doing great, man. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Not too bad. So for those of you who don't know, Travis is the, he's the host of the Finalysis, Finalysis. podcast. That's it. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a blogger over at, well, what is the website again? Because I, I, I butchered it earlier. So it's Welcome to Perfectville, you know, a play on the 1972 team, which mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't alive for, but that's what my uh, my partner, I suppose, went with. Um, his name's Sam Marku. Him and Chris Colin host the Welcome to Perfectville podcast. We made a uh, sister podcast, the Finalysis podcast, and then also the Right Travis Wright um, blog portion, which is a play on the Run Ricky Run um, <laughs> moniker back from the early 2000s. That's awesome. Yep. So, so I, I got to ask, Saturday night seemed like that game kind of got out of hand. I mean, at one point you guys were losing in the first quarter, and then you came back to just just kick these guys in the face for 30 minutes straight and just yeah. kind of put them right out of it. <laughs> 
you should have seen the mood of the room when I, I watched my brother. He's a Dolphins fan also. And the mood of the room through the first uh, five or ten minutes of that game was pretty doldrum, man. We were not too thrilled with what we were seeing. Bryce Petty going down the field for a touchdown and Matt Moore taking two consecutive three and outs. So it was pretty boring. But then after that, uh, it turned into a full-fledged party. You know, it's not very often you get to watch your team win on a Saturday night in the NFL. So to be able to not have to go to work the next day was was pretty awesome. I remember the Bills winning on a Saturday in 2011 when we beat Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow? No, I, I took my little brother to that game. And it was one of the funniest things because it was Christmas Eve, kind of like this this week's upcoming mm-hmm. game was. And he he admitted to me that that was the – like. and he's a young kid. I wouldn't say young. He's five years younger than me, so he's going to be 25, 26. He said – he admitted to me that that's the drunkest – A, the drunkest he's ever been, which I didn't even realize he'd had that much to drink. Like – so I'm looking at it, and I'm watching him, and we're watching this football game, and we just demolish these guys. Well, then he, what does he do? He goes home and then tells my parents that me and my friends all got together and each drank almost a full case of beer. I was like, dude, you <laughs> can't, can't – oh, you can't do that. You can't roll me under the bus like that. So <laughs> those are those have been my memories of Saturday Night, Saturday Night Football games. Was yeah, That was the only one I ever got to see, but it was great, especially when your team wins. Oh, it's the best, man. We had an ugly sweater party to go to afterwards, so I just pretty much, uh, you know, kept pumping the beers, kept them flowing, and then and uh, continued the Saturday night on from there. Oh, well, so what happened in that game? I mean, I got to ask, how did it get so far out of hand so quickly? So it, it was a close game all the way through the first half. Um, you mentioned they went down by seven early on. Then Cam Wake got himself a strip sack like he is one to do on the Jets' second possession, was in the, which was in the red zone too. So, I mean, it was in danger of being 14 nothing, possibly 10 nothing there I can't, uh, early in that game. I can't ever remember some offensive line. I mean, I don't know what if it was a scheme thing or w- I watching Cameron Wake – and Indomitian Sue just obliterate Bryce Petty, like sawed him in half. Like I can't remember ever seeing an offensive. I don't know if it's a offensive scheme breakdown or if you guys on the D line just took it to him on that play. Oh yeah, that was the highlight real play of the night. It was the one thing when I came home and I did get to see something on TV about the game. It just kept getting played over and over and over again. Was you guys just breaking him in half? And how do you feel as a Jets fan when, uh, you know, you've you've gotten rid of Ryan Fitzpatrick how many times now? Two or three? And then <laughs> here he comes trotting back onto the field after Bryce Petty gets made into a sandwich by Wake and Sue. I think what they said had happened on that play was that uh, this, the ball got snapped to count early. So the, the Jets offensive line wasn't ready to block. And then you, that's how you get the two free rushers. And then, uh, you know, Bryce Petty kind of wishing he made a different career choice at that point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could see it. He was just he just got destroyed. Now, Travis, I will tell you, as Bills fans, we're glad that Mario wasn't a part of that play. <laughs> hey, Mario's played one game this year, and that was against you guys, so uh, we're hoping he makes his second appearance of the year. <laughs> well, speaking of him playing us, so we're going we're gonna to move on here in a second to the uh, our weekly you know preview of the upcoming game, Bills versus the Dolphins. But uh, you know, first, I have a question for you. So you you run this podcast, you run this web, you know this, you work for this website, you blog for them. I've got some standard questions that I ask everybody because it kind of helps me get a feel for you as just a person. You know, it helps our listeners get to try to try to identify with you a little bit more. So first yeah. and foremost, what is your out of all the Dolphins games you've gotten to see in your life? You're 29 years old. 
out of all of the Dolphins games you've seen over your lifetime, what was the best Dolphins game you've ever watched? There was a game back in 2002 at Mile High against Denver. <laughs> I believe both teams were 4-1 and one going into the game. It was Sunday night primetime. And it was when you know the Dolphins had Jason Taylor and Zach Thomas and Brock mm-hmm. Marion and Pat Sertan and and uh, and Sam Madison and, and all those you know great defensive players and the and the Broncos had Al Wilson and and their great guys over there as well Champ Bailey and it was just the hardest hitting game I'd ever seen. Uh, Ricky Williams was not getting much going that night, but we we uh, gave up a field goal with like 50 seconds to go for uh, by to Jason Elam to take the lead. And then they Jay Fiedler with a broken thumb marched back down the field with 50 seconds to go, and Alindo Mare hit a 50-yard field goal of his own to put the Dolphins back on top. And I remember going back to school the next day, and all the ESPN power rankings had the Dolphins at number one, and talking about you know a Super Bowl year, only to come to find out that he broke his thumb and Ray Lucas was taken over, and then the uh, rest was kind of history from there. But that game itself was phenomenal. Oh, see, that's got to be the best feeling. Like you just come down. You'd, Alindo Mare, when you said that name, like it just took me back. You just hearing yeah. someone like Patrick Sertain. These are players that you don't think about, and then when you hear the name, you're like, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> I remember. I remember uh, McDuffie. Oh yeah, he was late '90s guy. Um, <laughs> oh, early yeah. 2000s, he was a pretty good player. Oh yeah, no, the, the Dolphins had some players back in the. I'd say back in the mid to late '90s, early 2000s. You guys had you guys had a roster. Oh, it was always loaded up, man. The quarterback was just the one that they couldn't figure out. And then, you know, uh, Jimmy Johnson kind of forced out uh, Dan Marino. And then they also put Dave Wanstead onto us, who, uh, you know, famous, famously once said that what can Jay Fiedler do that, or what can Trent Green do that Jay Fiedler can't do? I think we all found out the answer to that pretty quickly after that. So he was uh, married to that quarterback for a long time and pretty much for me was the reason the Dolphins never made any serious runs with those talented rosters you mentioned. Wow. So then since we're on the subject of not making serious runs, what is your least favorite Dolphins game of all time? Ooh, that's a good one. Probably, uh, probably features you guys. Um, 2013, it was Tannehill's second year and we had to win one out of two games against you and the and the jets. And, uh, Tannehill completed like 10 out of 27 passes and we got blanked in that game. So that's probably the worst one ever. Wow. And then, so on game day, now, there's a lot of different pregame rituals. There's a lot of different guy. There's a lot of different ways that guys like to enjoy their game day. You live in Seattle. Your team plays in Miami. They're on the East Coast, so the games for you are on a little bit earlier. If you're going somewhere to catch it, or if you're watching it online, or if you're watching it at home, what is your game day routine? Uh, I pretty much get up around eight thirty or nine o'clock, depending on how much alcohol has been consumed the night before. Um, but after that, then we go uh, check the inactives, you know, check the message boards and see what's going on. Maybe watch a little bit of pregame. And then 10 o'clock, man, it's breakfast and, uh, and time to go for the game. So I always hang out at home and catch it on a Sunday ticket and uh, watch the games that way. If it's – I don't really like going out to the bar scene for games because I, I kind of like to, you know, tune in and, and make sure I hear what's going on and, and the updates and everything and be able to have my phone out and all that stuff. So I'm pretty much a football nerd when it comes to that. I get the multiple screens going with the Sunday ticket and the, and watch the Dolphins with something else off on the, on the other screen. So, so when very you, much a nerd. So when you, you watch a game at 10 a.m. for uh, breakfast, are you having kegs and eggs, beer and eggs for breakfast? I'm not, man. I, I You know, I – I'm getting past my drinking prime right now, but usually on Saturday nights before the game is when I would uh, would do it heavy. So um, I was usually recovering at that point and not going back to the hair of the dog that bit me. So just uh, just a good breakfast and a lot of water for me during Dolphins games most times. 
Oh, well, that's interesting you say that. I would tell you, as Drew and I are Bills fans, you would totally have a different perspective on that if your team has missed the playoffs 17 years in a row. <laughs> you would reach for a bottle of beer and or liquor immediately. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you, because, I don't know. So, so you get up, you said your, your games kick off at uh, 10 a.m., right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So you're probably up, I'm, I'm guessing, around 8 o'clock. Well, like, kind of like I said, whatever time you get home kind of dictates when you get up. And So for me, on a game day here, just to put it in perspective, I get up at 5 a.m. I have, if it's a home game, I have the truck packed. We're at the tailgate spot by about quarter to 7, 7 o'clock. I usually have my first beer by about 7.05. <laughs> it's a different breed out there, I suppose. <laughs> but it's also what it's, it's also what happens when it's five degrees outside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you gotta get yourself warm somehow. Now, out here in uh, in Seattle, you know, we we have other legal activities that we're allowed to do, so there are uh, other ways of medicating pregame as well. See, there you go. See, there it is. <laughs> see, we don't know any, we don't know anything about that out here. <laughs> so it's unfortunate, man. <laughs> so week sixteen, Bills versus Dolphins. Game time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in New Era Field. The early weather report, 37 degrees, overcast with a 10-mile-an-hour breeze. It's going to be muddy as hell. The betting line has Buffalo as a three-and-a-half-point favorite. Now, with all the changes that the Dolphins have seen in personnel between now and the last time that we played them, no amount of film or stat review can really do justice, uh, for me anyway, in an attempt to try to preview this game. That's why Travis is here, guys, to, to try to help us all get a feel for this team, who they are right now, and to try to paint a picture of what we can expect to see this weekend. So it starts with the offensive scouting report. Jay Ajay. Travis, what, what, what is going on with Jay Ajay? I mean, it, it seems like he's losing steam. Yeah, he hasn't had a 100-yard day since the game against the Jets back in early November. And I think there's two things that really kind of feed into that. I think they feed off of each other. The first is that teams are really committed to stopping the run against us. And, and you know, why wouldn't they be, you know, after the two, uh, the back-to-back 200-yard games? Um, the, not, uh, the two games specifically that I pointed out where they, uh, a lot of teams or both teams ran cover zero against us was the Jets on Saturday and then the Niners a couple weeks back. They would go cover zero with, you know, pretty much no one over the top and forced us to beat him through the air. And Tannehill went off and did that against the Niners. And then Matt Moore did the same thing against us, against the Jets on Saturday. So they're committing a lot of guys to the box. You know, they're, they're blitzing the A gaps and making sure those gaps are tough to run through. And then I think from there, he's pressing a lot. And uh, he's kind of burying his head and, and maybe trying to make the big play a little bit too often rather than showing more patience and finding the, you know, the kickback lanes or the cutback lanes, I should say, or uh, maybe even bouncing outside for the bigger holes. And then you got Mike Pouncey, you know, <laughs> I love Mike Pouncey when he's on the field, but I also hate when players can't stay healthy. So I kind of have a love-hate with him. But when he was on the field this year, he was as dominant as he's ever been. Uh, he's great at getting to the second level. He's capable of so many things that so many centers are not capable of in terms of getting out into space and you know, kind of walling off those mm-hmm. linebackers that are freed up in the second level to make tackles mm-hmm. on Ajayi. And he hasn't been able to make them miss in the hole like he was when uh, when Pouncey was around. So I think Pouncey's absence, uh, teams committing to the run, and Ajayi pressing are kind of the three things that – that um, have caused his production to dip down like it has. Well, so now I, I've got a question for you because I've got a number of things, and you actually touched on a bunch of them, you know, because uh, the injuries on your offensive line, your team, when it wasn't healthy at the beginning of the season, 
looked like a t- you guys look like a totally different football team. I think back to the Tennessee game where they just ran roughshod over your offensive line. But then, as soon as your offensive line got healthy and they got to start the five guys that they envisioned having as starters at the beginning of the season, your your offense just started going nuts on people, just ramming the ball down people's throats. Now, obviously the injuries matter, but do you also think his workload might play a role in this? I mean, I'm looking at during his breakout weeks from week six to nine, he was averaging four and a half yards per carry. But in all of all but one of his last four games, he's only averaged three or less. But he's still getting almost 20 carries a game. I mean, he's a young player still. So you got to think, you know, everyone talks about that rookie wall. Well, he didn't get to play much his rookie season. Now he's getting a lot more use because he's got a coach who's committing to the run. But at the same time, I mean, is that still too much for him to be running that way? And could that excess workload be affecting his production? Yeah, I think I think a bigger function of that is the uh, offensive line play in front of him. Because if you go back to the Baltimore game, he had uh, 61 yards and 57 of those yards came after contact. So he still leads the NFL in broken tackles. And despite, you know, getting a very limited workload the first few weeks of the season. So he still breaks a lot of tackles and makes a lot of yards that otherwise aren't there. But He's just getting hit a lot sooner than he was before. I mean, some of the holes that were being created, like in that first Buffalo game, for instance, when he went off for 200, and in the Pittsburgh game when he had 200, I mean, those were gaping holes that he would get to the second level, and then he would start punishing the, the safeties back you know, on the second level and, and get some more yards out of that. But he's, he is creating his own yards you know, from behind the line of scrimmage, but it just hasn't been there as much for him. And uh, you know, I do want to see them get more work to the other running backs because, like you said, Ajayi, he's – we're getting, you know, anywhere from 50 to 65 snaps in a game. And Ajayi is getting, you know, 45 to 50 of those reps. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other two backs are getting, you know, anywhere from 5 to 10. And it's like, you just can't rely on that through the course of a 16-game season anymore with, you know, a sub-package heavy league. And I think you should really look at getting Damian Williams and Kenyon Drake more work. So, I, yeah, I do agree with you on that, that he should probably reduce a little bit. Now, I'll say this. That's something that on this podcast to people who sit with me in the stands, to basically anyone who will listen to me once I've had five or six beers in me. I flip out about the fact that we have LaShawn McCoy. LaShawn McCoy is a great running back, but he's getting 20 carries in a game sometimes. We have capable running backs behind him, and I'm constantly talking about the need to preserve our lead running back because if he's dynamic and effective, he can do more of that when a defense is tired. I mean, I, I think back to that first Dolphins game, the fact that Ajayi in your running game just wore us down. I mean, we were leading for the majority of that game, but I felt like it was only a matter of time before you guys ran away with it and knew we wouldn't catch you because of the way you were just just gut-punching our defense with that running attack over and over and over again. But to your point, and to, I guess, my point, I'm always talking about it, backup running backs do need to play a role. The NFL is shifting now more towards platooning at running back. That's just the way things work because they've found that it helps to keep your running backs fresher, especially when you're talking about a running back who runs with the style of a giant. I mean, I was a huge Steven Jackson fan when he played for the Rams just because I loved the way he played football. But you saw how short his career, like where he was in the prime of his career and he was ultra productive. That window was so small for him because of the way he ran. Ajayi strikes me as a lot of the same player, except without some of the catching ability out of the backfield. Loves contact, can break tackles, can can kind of make his own plays. But at the same time, when you're constantly taking hits like that, it takes a toll on you over the course of a season, much less a career. 
So I, I absolutely agree with you that your other running backs should probably get more involved. But here's the question. Do you think your coach will do it? I think what he's done with the backups and you, you know, you mentioned the Buffalo running backs and I, I was always a big fan of Mike Gillisley, even when he was with Miami, thought he had a lot of potential there. But um, I think that Damian Williams has a really specific niche carved out for him where he's kind of a third down back. He's a little bit more used in, in the passing game. He's hit some wheel routes and some, he's lined up out wide at receiver a few times and, you know, flexed out for uh, to go up in the passing game. And then um, he also gets a lot of goal line work too. And then Kenyon Drake is just kind of like the, breather guy so i don't know that ajay is just maybe a little bit you know fresh at this point because he didn't get a big workload last year but i mean you look back to his boise state days and he was a, a ball hog i mean he got the ball mm-hmm. over and over and over again the production was there <laughs> i mean he had 3500 total yards and, and 33 total touchdowns this last year at boise state so he's no stranger to getting the heavy workload but i do agree with you man it's kind of scary to think that you know a guy that came into the draft with you know rumors of degenerative knees and yep. getting this big workload after a big workload of Boise State, you, you kind of wonder how long can he maintain that. So You're talking to a I, guy who's an Alabama football fan. I watch <laughs> what we do to running backs. You know what I mean? People, <laughs> yeah. No, people draft them, and it's not to say that they don't. I mean, we have some of the most talented backs in the country, which is why we're consistently competitive. But when those guys go on to play in the NFL, I'm always counting down the years until they eventually break down because the tread has been worn off the tires so much on these guys that, yeah, their production is huge. But they've taken so many hits and they've gotten so many carries in college that by the time they get to the pros, they have the same mileage on them as a two or three year veteran in the NFL. So a guy like Ajayi who took all those collegiate carries and now you're bringing it into the NFL. And yeah, you're right. His first year, he got to kind of hang out and he, not by his own, obviously not on his own accord, <laughs> but he got to hang out and kind of ride pine for a while. But. He's getting the workload now, and it's it's a with that combined with his running style. I mean, that's it's definitely something to watch. I mean, what do you think you're going to see from him this weekend as far as workload and production? Do you see? I mean, do you see the typical? He's going to get his twenty carries, and he they're going to use him seventy percent of the time on the field, or do you think that's going to maybe shift? I want to say they're going to take him off the field a little more, but I, I mean, they've got nothing to prove, you know, that theory correct. So I think they're going to keep doing what they've been doing, you know, commit to the, to some of the more heavy sets they've ran out of. Um, last week, they actually only activated two tight ends, which is pretty strange because they've gone three tight ends for, for most of the season. And they've gotten a lot of work to Dominic Jones and Marquise Gray, the second and third tight ends on the Dolphins. But they went two tight ends active last week, used them both a lot. I think you'll see some of that. I think the Bills game plan will dictate a lot what they do because there's kind of two options I see for Rex Ryan on Sunday. Maybe you guys, or Saturday, excuse me. Maybe you guys can correct this if I'm wrong, but I feel like he's either going to be, you know, what he's always been, which is an aggressive blitzer and a guy that likes to kind of turn the heat up on the quarterback and make him make quick decisions, or he's going to kind of play back and, uh, and force Matt Moore to throw into some tighter windows and, and play more of a coverage and rush for. And I think if he goes to that second option, you could see, you know, Ajayi get loose a little bit and, and kind of pr- provide the running attack to that dink and dunk style offense that's going to be required to win. So I, I think he will have success this weekend. Um, I know it's kind of going against the grain because he hasn't really had a lot lately, but I think the Bills run defense has been kind of the, you know, Achilles heel for the last couple of weeks. And I think they, that could continue. So then, I'm hoping he does go off. and I think it's possible he does. So my next question, as far as the, the Miami offense, you just kind of touched on it. Matt Moore is a starter. I have zero film to watch of him. I have last week's game. I mean, his stat lines from Saturday versus the Jets seem impressive. 12 of 18, 236 yards, four touchdowns, and one interception. 
Two of those touchdowns were throws from the goal line. I mean, it was nice to see them get Deion Sims involved because, I'll be honest, I haven't heard his name a whole lot this season. <laughs> it seems like he's almost an afterthought in the offense, for, or at least has been for a while. The thing is, the Jets' defense has some of the worst pass D in the conference right now. I mean, I mean, you think of the last three games, they've just gotten hammered through the air by whoever they're playing. So I guess the question is, is Matt Moore as good as advertised? I mean, if you saw the, his stat lines from that game alone and said, hey, Matt Moore, he's, he looks like a competent NFL, like a good NFL quarterback. Am I right or am I wrong? Honestly, I think it's more of a function of Adam Gaze and what he means to this offense and okay. kind of what he can do with the play calling. And and uh, I think you actually see probably a little bit bigger of a play sheet. I mean, earlier in the season, Ryan Tannehill, they had to scale the offense back because he wasn't quite getting it all the way. And I'm a huge Ryan Tannehill fan, so take nothing from him. And, and he really came a long way throughout the season. But Matt Moore, uh, Adam Gaze even said in one of his press conferences that whenever he talks to Matt Moore about you know a play, you know, some quarterbacks say, yeah, I'm not a fan of that one. Don't call that. But if Adam Gay suggests a play, you know, what do you think of this one? He says, yeah, call it. So, I mean, he's down for whatever he's going to call. And uh, I think one of the biggest uh, attributes that he displayed on on Saturday's game was his pre-snap recognition. Um, the Jets, like I said, they dared him to beat him, and he did. Um, they kind of came up heavy with some blitzes, and, and the, he got the protection calls right. And you mentioned Deion Sims not being much of a factor in the passing game. Because it's mainly because he's been in protection and in the running game a lot. I mean, he's played – pretty much every snap for the last three or four weeks of each game. So he's been heavily involved. And, you know, when, when Matt Moore calls for a, you know, a running back or a tight end to stay in for match protection, he relies on Kenny Stills and Devontae Parker and Jarvis Landry to win some of those routes. And they, and last week they did. So uh, I think that uh, Matt Moore's pre-snap recognition, his ability to get the ball out on time and, and get his protections right was what really uh, stood out for him on Saturday. So, so you're saying his pocket presence is pretty good. I mean, it seems like he seems comfortable playing behind that line. If he's making protection calls, then it means he understands the offense enough that he can recognize what the defense, not only what the defense is going to throw at him, but also how to effectively communicate it within the play clock to the guys who are ultimately protecting his ass. So that's that's big, considering there's a lot of backup quarterbacks in the NFL who can't do that. So I guess i got to ask, what does his rapport with the wide receivers look like? Because I, I took a look over the numbers, and I see that no one player on the team had more than four targets. But two had more than 50 yards receiving, and three different players caught touchdowns. Is there any one receiver that he specific, that you think he may like more than others, or is he just is he always going to just be looking to make a play to someone? Well, it's like you said, you know, it's kind of hard to say based on the way the offense functioned on uh, on Saturday with, you know, spreading the ball around. And that's kind of been the, the theme all year is they kind of find matchups they like. And a lot of Adam Gaze's offense is kind of running, you know, decoy routes or, or using things to open up parts of the field for one particular guy. So it just kind of depends on what they're seeing and, and what is open. You know, they're, they're an offense that's going to take what the defense gives them. As cliche as that sounds, um, that's kind of Adam Gaze's staple. And, you know, he kind of fits into what – uh, you know, playing to the strengths of his personnel rather than making forcing his scheme onto players. So I think if you had to, to highlight one, I mean, it's kind of hard to say. I maybe Deion Sims because early in the year, I, whenever you see a backup quarterback, you try to like try to look at some of the you know third or fourth options in the passing tree mm-hmm. because that's the guy that he practiced with all off season and, and all in the you know scout team whatever uh, during practice throughout the week. So I think Deion Sims with Jordan Cameron starting the year 
on the roster for whatever reason he was on the roster. Uh, he probably got a lot of work with Deion Sims in the offseason, so I think that might have been why you saw him more involved in the passing game on uh, against the Jets. Well, you know, and Bills fans are familiar with that concept because when Ryan Fitzpatrick was Trent Edwards' backup, he was doing most of his work with Stevie Johnson, who was a seventh-round draft pick. And then after Ryan Fitzpatrick got bumped up to the starting job here in Buffalo, the coach went around and just asked every single player. Ken Gailey just went to everybody on the, in, in the cornerbacks and in the safeties room, just went around and said, hey, guys, who don't you like covering? And they all came back with the same answer, like Stevie Johnson. No one knows where that guy's going to be. We don't know how <laughs> he's hard to track because he's shifty. And so he immediately promoted him into a starting role, and you saw the chemistry that those two players had already built. And they just blew up based on that. So I can absolutely see where if he has a rapport with Deion Sims from them being kind of you know, secondary players on the team, that, that would definitely translate over to them both being in a starting position at the same time. Now, one of the things I noticed from the stats, though, is that you guys only took five deep shots the whole game. The whole game. Now, I know that when you're winning, you don't really have a need to try to sling the ball downfield. And obviously, the Stills reception was, you know, you actually have a piece written <laughs> all about the Stills reception and just about the passing attack as a whole. I, you know, I read some of it, and it was good stuff. I mean, that's typically a ball Kenny Stills would have dropped earlier on in his career. Can we agree on that? Uh, you know, you're kind of going against me on that because I'm a huge Kenny Stills fan. Loved him back in Oklahoma and, and mm-hmm. with the Saints as well. And I loved giving uh, just a third-round pickup for him. I mean, he had the drop in Seattle, which was you know devastating at the time. But uh, he, he's been pretty clutch for us all year. Seven touchdowns, three of them from 50-plus yards. And then none of them, none of them were even uh, within 25 yards of the end zone. So big plays all year from Stills, and just been kind of more of the same from him, you know, from my perspective. See, now when I see, St- I'll be honest, and then I guess maybe it's just because I don't like the Dolphins, <laughs> but <laughs> but the plays of him that are burned in my mind are. I watched that Cincinnati game. You wrote about it in your article, and I can I'm still watching it in my head. He's open. And the ball hits him in the hands, the chest, and then trampolines into the crowd. Like, that's a touchdown throw. That is a touchdown pass that you need to catch as an NFL wide receiver. And I feel like he, he's been inconsistent. I mean, Tannehill was looking for him to be the guy last year, and he wasn't that guy. Yes, he'll make your splash plays, but I feel like he leaves more on the table than he, than he actually makes. So his big catch in the last game aside, I mean, you've got the big yards after the catch play by Jarvis Landry. The deep passing game for you guys really wasn't there. So I don't know if that's because they, and maybe they just didn't try it a lot because they didn't have to. I mean, when you're up on a team by 20-something points, you're not really looking to chuck it around at that point. Yeah, and uh, you know Adam Gaze mentioned in the beginning of the season that this this league is all played within ten yards of the line of scrimmage, and he you know he plays it that way, and he, he's kind of a chess player in the sense that he likes to set things up for later plays, and and they build in about five to eight shot plays per game, and if it's there they take a shot at it, if not they don't, you know they'll just they'll settle for what the defense gives them, but uh, yeah, I mean he's been a big play guy for us all year, and um, you know uh, the the drop against the, the Seahawks cost him the game probably but you know that was pretty much the only one that he really had that really cost him i think he had one against buffalo that he could have could have caught too but the ball's a bit underthrown and then mm-hmm. you mentioned last year uh, i think he was just kind of miscast in, in a bill lasers um Wait, that guy was for? that guy was terrible yeah, i'm sorry i don't know how <laughs> i don't know how your team accomplished what it did with that guy as an offensive coordinator so i 
So to your point, 10 yards from the line of scrimmage, Adam Gase is famous for saying that's how he likes to play offense. That makes Jarvis Landry your number one receiver. Absolutely. Devontae Parker, he's your number two. He's that big, tall guy outside. But is that right? I mean, you love Kenny Stills. You've got a lot of love for him. Who do you think are the number two and number three targets with Matt Moore as your quarterback? Like on Sunday, outside of, I mean, obviously every Bills fan knows Jarvis Landry is going to be targeted a lot. Who else do we have to worry about in the passing attack? It's pretty much been the four the four guys we talked about already throughout the last few weeks. Um, you know, Landry, obviously, Parker Stills, and Deion Sims. But, uh, you know, Stills has... Stills' production has been better than Parker's this year. In the preseason, he was getting a lot of work and a lot of action, and I thought that would be you know, kind of indicative of what happened throughout the season. But I think that drop in the opener, I mean, it was the, it was the first play of the second quarter of the first game. So, I mean, you're setting a precedent very early on there that a play like that can really kill a player's confidence. You know, I think it did for a little bit. And then he, you know, he got deep against the Bengals on a Thursday night and scored a long touchdown there. And pretty much since then, he's been a pretty dominant player. I mean, not dominant, but he's been a good player. Um, we played a game against the Jets at home back in November, and he they scored 14 points with him in the game, and he came out before half, and the offense only scored three points the rest of the way on six drives. So I think yeah. that – and in the article, what I mentioned was a lot of the clear-out routes that he runs and how he's, he executes it and runs every route as though he's the, the, you know, the primary read on that route, even though he knows he's not. I think that's kind of what I was going for in that article was just saying that he's a selfless, selfless player that will uh, set up his teammates and, mm-hmm. and open things up for Jarvis Landry, like you mentioned, and, and for Javante Parker as well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up the offensive portion of this because I'll be honest, the line, the line is what they are. You know, we, we saw how dominant they can be when they're healthy. Clearly, without Pouncey, they're not as dominant up front, but they're still good. You know what I mean? It's still an offensive line that managed to keep Matt more clean against a talented defensive line in, in the New York Jets. So I have to ask, if Matt Moore had one deficiency, what do you think it is and how can the Bills use that to their advantage? It is 100% his arm talent. Uh, you know, say what you want about Ryan Tannehill, but he's got the arm that, you know, every offensive you know play call or whatever dreams about. But Matt Moore does not have that. I mean, that's kind of been his downfall throughout the whole course of his career. He kind of made his money back in Carolina by throwing up some 50-50 balls to Steve Smith, which we know what he does with those. So he took care of them there. And then uh, this year, you know, I, I think that the idea of the Bills dropping guys into coverage and forcing and forcing tight windows for Matt Moore is kind of the key. I think that if he has to, you know, convert a lot of third and sevens where they maybe have a single high safety and they can't get deep on him and they force him into, you know, some plays where he has to pick it, pick apart some windows. That's where they could really capitalize because he throws some ducks sometimes. You saw the throw to Devontae Parker on Saturday night that mm-hmm. got left short. That was just, I mean, that's a duck that Matt Moore throws. But he does throw some accurate ducks sometimes, so I guess he gets away with it. But his arm talent just isn't that special. So then we're going to switch over to the defensive side of the ball. I'm looking at I'm I'm looking at your defense as a whole. The previous game against the Jets excluded because they're starting Bryce Petty, who I don't think is an NFL caliber quarterback. I just don't. The Dolphins' defense hasn't exactly been perfect since the bye week. I mean, you guys went into the bye. And you've only lost one game since then. I mean, since week nine, you guys have only lost one game, which is crazy to think. But your defense has allowed an average of 22 points a game. That, that, that's big. How much of that comes down to injuries? Uh, I, you know, 
the first game of the of the winning streak where they had. So they've actually won eight out of nine now. The first win of that game after the Tennessee game was uh, was against Pittsburgh. And Rashad Jones, who for my money is the best safety in the NFL, if not top three at the very worst, uh, he got knocked out in that game. He's been out with a shoulder injury all year. So he's, you know, his absence is kind of hurt at times, especially when it comes to covering tight ends. You saw the Ravens just absolutely destroy mm-hmm. the Dolphins in the intermediate passing game with some dump offs to the tight ends and whatnot. And I think that's where his absence is felt. Uh, Jelani Jenkins has an injury, and I'm not really a big Jelani Jenkins fan as it is. Uh, fan as it is, he plays the will linebacker, gets a lot of uh, you know snaps and sub packages as well. And he uh, he's got an injury right now where they're saying that he's having a hard time decelerating, so he kind of overruns a lot of plays and, and he can't crank it down. So Jesus, he's, and I know, and I, and I guess Kiko also. Kiko is yeah, also sub. So basically, both of your inside, both of your starting inside linebackers are suffering injuries. And I and I, I you saw that kind of manifest itself against the Jets with kind of an inability to tackle Blau Powell. I mean, I saw a lot of missed tackles from what the highlights that I saw. A lot of it wasn't so much the guys in the Jets side of the ball making great plays as it was the, there was plays being left on the table by the defense of the Dolphins. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, it was. I, I think that was a big a big part of that was Jelani Jenkins having just a rough night. He's kind of had a rough year all here this year, and. Uh, you know, the, the linebackers are the Achilles heel of the Dolphins, so I think that, um, you know, him being out. And then uh, Alonzo's got a broken thumb, but he's playing through that. He said that's not a problem, but he's got a hamstring injury, too, that's kind of that's kind of hampering him. But he made a great stop on a fourth and one where he kind of knifed in and, and blew up a play in the backfield. So he's played well. Um, he has his shortcomings, but he's played well for the most part. But sub packages against the linebackers and then the safety spot that's no longer occupied by Rashad Jones it's either Bakari Rambo who you guys are familiar with mm-hmm. or Michael Thomas and uh both those guys kind of struggle against you know some of the bigger tight ends and and Robbie Anderson smoked Bakari Rambo for a 40-yard touchdown pass and man coverage which I think was more of a coaching thing because he shouldn't be covering him in the first place so no no that's but, a bad play call if you're gonna <laughs> Anderson's a big guy he's not small he's he's a, he's a good sized receiver so to see him out there, I guess one of the things is I'm looking at your defense right now, and I'm saying, okay, Bakari Rambo, I know who Bakari Rambo is. He's a great in-the-box safety. You know, yeah. He'll make some aggressive tackles on special teams. He'll make you, he'll make you some plays. He'll, he'll do some flash things every now and again. Do not put him on an island against a tight end. Do not trust him to try to take a wide receiver deep because those are the things that Bakari Rambo can't do. I mean, we watched him struggle with it for two seasons. I mean, he had the one game that basically guaranteed his second contract here in Buffalo. He picked off Aaron Rodgers three times. Yeah. I mean, that, that game was unbelievable. And then last season, he had a game against the Jets where he forced two turnovers. And he was, again, the player of the game. But more often than not, if he's not in the box and you try to put him in the deep part of the field, he's lost. He just doesn't have that speed and that recognition and the lateral quickness to keep up with those guys. So I, I honestly think that those are the reasons why why you guys are hemorrhaging the points that you have been. And I think that that's where the Bills could attack you the most. I mean, Charles Clay's coming off probably the best game of his entire career. And he played big against you guys in the last couple times we played you. I mean, Charles, I don't know if it's because he's got a chip on his shoulder or what, but... I feel like there's opportunities here for Buffalo's offense. I mean, I don't know. Do you feel the same way, or do you think I'm just being overly optimistic? 
I would probably go with the latter. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> okay, to be that's fair. Honest with you, that's fair. Uh, I know that the two games where they allowed a lot of points was the the San Francisco game, which for me that was just you know garbage effort by a lot of players. Uh, Kaepernick got off on, on on the ground game as well in the past game. That was just a garbage game. And then the following week against Baltimore, the same thing happened. Like like we mentioned earlier, but the last two games, I mean Arizona didn't do a damn thing against the Dolphins until Ryan Tannehill got hurt. And I know you know Tannehill doesn't play defense, but all the energy in that stadium was just sucked out of there after Tannehill got hurt, and the Cardinals proceeded to go down the field twice for two lengthy touchdown drives. So that's where those points came from. And then, uh, you know, last week the Jets scored 13 points, mm-hmm. and and six of those were in garbage – or no, sorry, three of those were garbage time. The first drive was seven points, and then from that point on they didn't do anything. So I wasn't really too concerned with the defense as I was the offense more the last few weeks. Now the one player I have to ask about, I'm obligated. It's almost contractual obligation. Mario Williams. <laughs> Mario Williams started off this season. He talked a lot of shit. He talked a lot of shit. He talked a lot of shit on his way out the door here in Buffalo. Rex Ryan followed it up with a quote. I, I, if I'm quoting this correctly, it's that I've walked over tougher guys than him on my way to a fight. <laughs> so, so there's no love lost between our coach and Mario Williams. He shows up in Miami. He says all the right things during the preseason. Then the season starts. The bullets start flying, and I, I feel like you guys as Miami fans kind of got to see why we didn't want him around anymore. Yeah, he's he's not been good for us. The effort level's not there. He doesn't have any interest in playing the run, which is what we saw in Buffalo. And I guess he kind of pretty much salesman his way into a new job with the Dolphins. And if I actually look at some of the comments he's making lately, he's, he's doing the same thing again because he's going to be cut this offseason. He's kind of talking about how, you know, He's, his focus is back with you know where it needs to be and how he's trying harder and all this stuff. So good for him. Uh, good riddance. You know you can't get them all right, and that was one that the Dolphins definitely whiffed on. So I I, I uh, I'm with you guys and a big salute to f you to Mario Williams. Now with you with you just saying that he's going to get cut, do you think his career's over? I think somebody will take a chance on him, man. I mean, you, that that raw talent and that size and that length is pretty special. And, you know, he used to have a pretty good get off off last scrimmage. But I think he'll work his way into like a one-year incentive-laden deal where he probably just kind of gives up again and, and collects a paycheck like he's been doing all year for the Dolphins. I mean, it's incre- it, It's just incredible to me. And I think that's the thing that frustrates me most about watching what you guys did this offseason. You let Olivier Vernon walk. You, know, you let him walk because you said, okay – we, we think we have an idea of what he is as a player, and he's not worth what he's going to command in the open market. So we're not going to try to bid for him. We're just going to let him go. You sign Mario Williams. Thank God that Cameron Wake came back on for you guys. Because if Wake hadn't showed up and gotten back into form for you, who else would have been? Who, I mean, Mario Williams, has, I mean, he got in the doghouse early, and I don't think he's ever gotten out of it. I mean, he's right for, for by all reports, he's coming off the bench every game. He is not your starting defensive end, correct? No, yeah, he was replaced by Andre Branch, you know, ions ago, and Andre Branch has been awesome this year. He was a bargain free agent that has been a consistent pass rusher and, and okay against the run. But uh, he came in during the winning when the winning streak started and started at the uh, right defensive end. And him and Wake have been awesome together. They've been a great combo. And, and Branch <laughs> is going to get himself a new contract with the Dolphins here coming up shortly because of the way he's played this year. Good, good. Hey, like you said, F you Mario. <laughs> good riddance, good riddance. We all agree on that. <laughs> so I guess that brings us to predictions. Yeah? Now, we're going to do a little over-under. Here, I want to ask you. 
I'm going to give you some statistics. I want you to tell me whether you think it's going to go, whether that number, whether they're going to be over it or under it. Matt Moore, 250 yards passing. I'll go under on that. So you don't think he'll throw that much? Now, do you think no. that'll be because of game plan, or do you think that's because of the Bills' defense? Um, game plan. He threw 18 times last week. I know that they had a big lead by the fourth quarter, but he only threw 18 times last week. I think the Dolphins have have shown that even if the run's not working, they're going to commit to it. So I doubt he'll have the opportunity to go for that much unless he goes for over 10 yards per throw again like he did last week. Jay Ajayi, 80 yards rushing. I'll go over on that one. Okay. LaShawn McCoy, 125 all-purpose yards against your defense. I'll say over on that as well. Over? See, I am just assuming. <laughs> I don't know how much Bills football you watch, but maybe you know he is the engine that drives our team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's it. He's going to. He, he can run for as many yards as our quarterback can throw, which isn't a ringing endorsement of Tyrod. <laughs> so. Well, you guys were you guys were up on a seventeen to six in the first meeting, and he had that hamstring issue where he couldn't do anything. So I think yep. that that was probably the difference in that game. So uh, we definitely dodged a bullet with him the first time. And we're well aware of that. <laughs> I also don't think that we utilized Mike Gillisley that game, even no. with Shady's injury. No, we mm-hmm. came out I'd with agree. a game. We came out with a game plan that involved throwing the ball, which you know that's poor coaching. This yeah. is poor if you're a run-first offense who's capable of grinding out more than 100 yards in the ground, then you just stick to what works and just trust yeah, the next yeah. man up will carry the load. I think he probably look at he probably looks at the secondary and thinks the Dolphins aren't that good, but I mean the Dolphins secondary has been pretty damn good lately. I mean, uh, you guys have you know, definitely right stepped now, up from where you were last year. Because I'll say this: uh, the last couple seasons, you guys have gotten whooped. I mean, I yeah. remember there was a kid was it McCain who we just worked in the first game where we came down to Miami last year and just stomped you guys out. I think it was week three. Yeah. We came in and just <laughs> abused one. one cornerback all day, mm-hmm. just just whooped on him. And then you guys cut him like, <laughs> like a week later. Yeah, he was bad. He was never supposed to be a, a, a permanent player for us, I don't think. And I think it was Bryce McCain is the one you're talking about because they have a guy now mm-hmm. named Bobby McCain, and he plays a pretty good slot corner. And they have a, a rookie, Xavier Howard, who's back from injury last week, and he he allowed one catch to Brandon Marshall, so that was pretty impressive to see. What about Miko Grimes? Oh God, <laughs> is, she, is she still there? Hey, Ron, she's, she's in the state, right? Ron Cannon, if you're listening, Miko <laughs> Grimes says happy birthday. <laughs> she's, the, I think she's the worst thing that ever happened to football, man. Uh, she, you know, we don't got to get into her her uh, profanity laced. Uh, rants on twitter or anything like that but she had some pretty choice words about some of the dolphins players and she was pretty vocal about ryan Tannehill and how no one in the locker room liked him well if you saw ryan Tannehill after he blew up his knee against the cardinals pretty much every dolphins player individually came over and like shed a tear with him so i think they pretty much disproved that uh backward ass theory that that crazy lady came up with well she sucks and i'll be honest i'll tell you a story since you probably haven't heard it now you get to hear it on the air so (laughs) Chris and I, we were kind of just like tro- kind of breezing through because she had gotten. I don't know, are you you're familiar with Ron Caniff? Uh uh-uh. Okay, so Ron Caniff, he, he runs Locked the Locked on, on Dolphins Locked on podcast, Dolphins. and okay. he's come on our show a few times. He had he had her on a podcast for an interview. No way. They did an interview <laughs> together. She proceeded to go, and, and it, the whole thing broke down because he's just like, you're not a professional. You're not, you know, you you don't sound, the way you're talking, it's just not. <laughs> she went, I'm not kidding, I'm like, 
She said, I don't so care. her I response. Don't care. Well, hang on. Her response to him bashing her on, the, not even bashing her personally, not saying anything, but just saying, "Listen, I don't like your podcast because you don't sound like a professional. You carry yourself like you're throwing a tantrum, and that's not what this is supposed to be." Yeah. I don't care if I offend anybody. She went all hood rat. Her on response him. to him. <laughs> no, no. She went on Twitter and bashed him. Just was posting pictures of him and was like, "Who sleeps with this guy?" Like, oh, uh, and then she made a comment that almost made it seem like she may have. And I'm I right hand to God. I'll defend this to anybody. I have a picture of it that it alleges that she may or may not have off like accepted money from someone at some point in time to perform a certain act or two <laughs> and then just welched on it. And I'm like, well, wait, is she she's trying to use like the act of prostitution as like she's making fun of somebody. But you just. You just, you just alluded to prostitution. What's wrong with you? And, and I guess the bigger question is, what is wrong with Brent Grimes? You're married to this woman who has the ability to make your life hell. She's ruining the public's view of you. And you know what? You're right. The public, you know, public opinion doesn't matter a ton. But I bet you when GMs look at that and they say, okay, there's a bunch of free agent, free agent cornerbacks. Who do I want? Do I want this guy over here? Who's probably a you know, B B minus level talent, but he doesn't come with any baggage. Or do I want this guy who's a B level talent, but his wife is nuts and she's going to make my life a living hell? I think I think watching uh, Sammy Watkins pretty much drag Brent Grimes up and down the field twice last year, <laughs> it, it was it was made worth it by uh, seeing Miko Grimes face down on the pavement outside of uh, Hard Rock Stadium getting arrested. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw that. Oh, no, I knew it was awesome. I mean, she's she might be the worst thing that ever happened to your franchise. (laughs) She may be the worst thing that ever happened. Screw Joe Philbin. She might be worse (laughs) than him. (laughs) So what's your prediction for the final score, Travis? Oh, man, we just recorded the finalysis podcast right before I came off you guys. And uh, I I mentioned to my co-host, Kevin Dern, that I think this game, because all Dolphins games this year have just kind of had something funky happen at the end, whether it was the you know, kickoff return to beat the Jets or Kiko Alonso's pick six to beat the Chargers or Ryan Tannehill scoring four or leading the team to 14 points uh, after scoring zero through 55 minutes against the Rams. It's just been something after another every week to, to come up with these wins late. So I feel like in a ultimate revenge game with all these former Dolphins on the Bills and then we got Mario Williams obviously I think what's going to happen is the Dolphins are going to have a 17 to 16 lead late in the game and our boy Dan Carpenter is going to shank one and uh, we're going to celebrate a playoff berth based on Dan Carpenter missing a field goal oh oh my god don't you put that evil on me Ricky Bobby good (laughs) lord oh man that's you know what that's way more criminal than anything I would have put on you what I was going to say is that I'm looking at the way our teams stack up. I think the Bills have a, a shot to win this game. But, again, our winning, I said it earlier in the podcast, we've only beaten one team this year with a winning record right now, and that's the Patriots when they didn't have Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. I think that this thing comes down late. I think it's a low-scoring game. I think we lose 21-17. to that would make me very happy. It'd be a good Christmas gift for me, Travis. I'll tell you, in I can't pick Miami in a good conscience because Jim Kelly against Dan Marino. <laughs> you guys will always be number one in my book as my most hated team. I cannot. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I cannot, in a good conscience, pick Miami to win this game 
as good, and that's even, I just said, as good, and I, I can't go any farther because my mouth doesn't work like that to say Miami and good in the same sentence. As good as you guys have been, I still, in a good conscience, cannot pick Miami to win this game. Buffalo will win 23-21. to 21. Ooh. I think Dan, we all agree it's going to be a close one. Though. If Dan Carpenter kicks that game-winning field goal, though, does that almost hurt more? Of course it does. I mean, the guy. <laughs> I think the 2012 season, he, we had like we started off one and three. And I'm pretty sure in two of those games, he had chances to win the game late with a field goal and missed it. So uh, <laughs> another guy that I'm going to go ahead and bid good riddance to. Oh man! All right, Travis. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on Twitter and where they can find your work? So the right Travis Wright uh, blog from WelcomeToPerfield.com is kind of uh, my name that I go off of, I, I guess, for my football writing. Um, I, at Twitter, it's at Travis underscore writes. Um, and like I said, WelcomeToPerfield.com, the Finalysis podcast, as well as right Travis Wright blog. And also check out the Welcome to Perfectville blog. It's more of a, you know, kind of a, it's similar to your guys' setup here, the way that their podcast runs. And it's pretty entertaining. It's really awesome. So the analysis is more of like an X's and O's and just kind of straight to the point where they're they're more entertaining than we are. So uh, that's that's our uh, site and that's what we do. <laughs> and now i got to ask you one question. Every fan knows that there's something wrong with their football team, Something something that just grinds their gears. If you had to pick one for the Dolphins for the 2016 season, what would it be? Oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, well, I'll tell you the reason I ask. Are you familiar with Festivus? I, w- I was going to say, you guys, I don't know who sent the email to me for the prep of the show, but uh, I had something <laughs> written down for Festivus, but it, I wouldn't necessarily say it was part of the 2016 season. So Okay, um, so, but what, so, okay so then what is your – yay, let it fly. This is the thing that bothers you. Get it off your chest, I, brother. What do you got? I, every Dolphins fan would agree that it's uh, – it's not Ryan. It's Ryan Tannehill. It's not Ryan Tannehill is one. And we everybody and that has ever watched a football game or the Dolphins play knows that Ryan Tannehill played receiver at Texas A&M. You don't have to remind us every freaking game that he used to play receiver. And there you have it, folks. That was Travis Wingfield. Again, welcome to PerfectReveal.com, Dolphins blogger over there, and a host of the Finalysis podcast. And you can see it. Even teams that win have problems. They have things that maybe just grind their gears a little bit, piss them off real good. And isn't that what the season of Festivus is really all about? Folks, we've come together this week. Chris and I, you know, you guys didn't get to hear it on the podcast, but we were fighting earlier. Why? Because it's Festivus. And and what is Festivus, you might ask? And at the Festivus dinner, you gather your family around and tell them all the ways they have disappointed you over the past year. Well, Bills, Bills fans, as is, is our annual tradition, we're going to get some stuff off our chest tonight. You know, over the course of an NFL season, especially one that doesn't end with a playoff berth, fans can become depressed, disgruntled, downtrodden, and what's worse, they can let that frustration leak out into their everyday lives. Nobody wants that, especially during the holidays. So join us here at the Rock Pile Report. And come together, you know, as, as we come together for this therapeutic and time-honored tradition. The Rockpile Report's annual 2016 airing of grievances. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. 
<laughs> We're going to kick this thing off. Lars, host of the Bills and Beers podcast. He writes in, ownership has a three-stream reporting structure of head coach, GM, president. When you oversee everybody, nobody oversees anybody. So from players to the head coach to the GM, there's no clarity on who the fuck is running things. <laughs> Chris, what do you think about that? Couldn't have said better. <laughs> Lars. Cheers, cheers. We'll drink to that. Oh, Jesus. Mayor McCheese, one of our followers on Twitter, writes in the quote unquote, they played better than us today line that Lex Rex loves to throw around. Festivus is back! Oh, it's a zinger. I'm so sick of hearing them talk about how, oh, well, I guess they just outplayed us today. Don't sound so happy about it. God damn it. I'm I'm the one driving home in my car after the game wanting to just drive it off the nearest embankment. <laughs> don't don't come out and casually tell me that, oh, well, I guess they played better than us today. It's like you could insert game show music after a phrase like that. It's terrible. It's got to go. Next up, Eric Harris, one of our listeners and follower on Twitter. Rex always pointing out an irrelevant positive statistic in an otherwise shit performance. <laughs> Eric, cut the guy a little slack. I mean, what is he supposed to do? I mean, you, what do you want him to say? Well, we came out and we sucked in the first quarter. They ran the ball down our throats. And then in the uh, second quarter, they uh, ran the ball down our throats some more. And they let up a lot of touchdowns. And I'm disappointed in my players. And I'm going to go home and drink a fifth of whiskey. And <laughs> I don't even know. Like, what do, you, what do you guys want him to say? He's going to come out there and do his job as a coach, which is to not piss all over his players. <laughs> but that's a good one. Another one of our followers on Twitter, Dab Daddy, comes in and says, No matter who gets brought through this organization, it ends up the same. Incompetence and inconsistency. You're not exactly wrong, but we're not alone in that, Dab. We are not alone. It's the only thing that keeps me warm at night. Oh, this one's my favorite out of anybody that tweeted us. Uh, Dr. Kyle Trimble, who was actually on our show for the soft tissues uh, piece. I hate how often Jack Nicholas gets mentioned as O'Leary's grandfather. <laughs> Kyle, I love that it's, one. It's like the announcers I love have, it. It's like the announcers don't have anything else to say. They, they they've run out of anything to say when they come up with his name. Not that you know he won uh, the award for being the best collegiate tight end the year he came out for the draft. Not that he played at Florida State and competed for a championship. No, no his Jack grandfather Nicholas. won the fucking Masters. <laughs> so somehow that trumps everything you could say about Nick O'Leary. Oh, Jesus. And then Dr. Kyle Trimble came back with another zinger. It's stupid that a 24-ounce beer at Key Bank Arena is the same price as a 16-ounce beer at New Era Field. What a ripoff. <laughs> he's he's not lying. That's that that is. It's almost as if they know that football fans will drink more if you make it more cost effective. <laughs> if you make it a value, they'll just continue to drink. You'd almost think maybe they're deterring us from being drunken menaces in the stands. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Another one of our followers, Kevin G came in, he said that his two grievances for the year, drafting two players that were injured in Colby Lissenby and Shaq Lawson. Now, first and foremost, I don't regret either one of those picks. I think they will pan out with time, but I can see you being pissed about drafting two guys who can't play. 
But then the last part, he says, white helmets. White helmets. I'll, I, Kevin, I'm on the same page as you. I miss the red football helmets. Chris, what about you? I'll take white. Oh, see, I thought it was bullshit when they changed. I was mad. I, I grew up loving those red helmets. And I thought that the change to a white helmet, it, it, I don't know. What has what it done for us? Nothing. It doesn't give us a competitive advantage. And it looks stupid. Bring back the white. Bring back the red helmets. Down with white. Down with whitey. <laughs> Chris, you want to read the next one? Frank Miosi, defense, defense, defense. It was pitiful this year. <laughs> it wasn't pitiful. People act like we're the worst, like we're the worst defense in football. We are not the Cleveland Browns. I think you started a podcast like this. Injuries, injuries, injuries. <laughs> defense, 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 <laughs> injuries. But the fact is, is, hey, if you want to be pissed about the defense, I'm not going to begrudge you that because you're right. They've underperformed. Well, good Lord. People talk about them like we are the Cleveland Browns, even though our defense just trounced those clowns. So, another one of our followers on Twitter, Sabretooth, came in and said his grievance with the 2016 season isn't even, it doesn't have anything to do with the team. And I quote, the dopes who call into WGR, our WGR shows are amusing. If you call and don't know the GM's name, then just stop and hang up. I would add a caveat to the end of it. Hang yourself. Nothing pisses me off quicker or makes me change the radio station faster in the morning than when some jerk-off calls with a hot take, with a flaming hot take, and then doesn't know the name of any of the players, can't pronounce the GM's name. I don't care what you say. Doug Wiley is a great GM. <laughs> oh, that Doug Wiley. You know, he's a great GM, but screw that rush. Screw that Rusty Branson. <laughs> what is it? Rusty Branson guy. Screw that Ru- Rusty Branson. He's got to go. <laughs> and then someone else comes back and says, oh, no. Remember when he uh, he put that stadium with that Carl Wilson guy on the stadium parking lot? He's a great dude. No, these guys all suck. Guys, if, you're, if anyone listening is one of those guys, you know, it's the holidays. I'll take it easy on you. But for the love of God, put your phone away. When you think that you've got a good idea or something positive, you know, something that you want to say, some hot take on the Buffalo Bills, take a pillow and put it over your face and just scream your opinion into it so that I don't have to be subjected to it. Christ. And then Steve-O from England. We have a a Buffalo Bills fan and a follower on Twitter from England. He, He doesn't, he's learning about American football. He reaches out to us to ask us questions. He asks me things about X's and O's. Some of his stuff here was gold, and I couldn't help but include three of them. His first grievance on the air, allowing that Miami guy, J.H.I., hilariously enough, to run for over 200 yards. He was born in England. He shouldn't even know how to play American football. (laughs) (laughs) Or his NFL game pass. Those guys suck. Pay 140 Whatever the British... One, 140 quid. That's right, folks. He, the, the British slang for money. He pays 140 quid to watch every Bills game. Except if it's on some satellite TV here. And if the first game they show goes into overtime, I can't watch the game till the first game ends. And when I complain to the idiots over there, they run and they run out of answers, they tell me they'll look into it and just send me some pre-written email response. 
he, he went on like a 25-minute Twitter rant just about how shitty the NFL Network Pass is when you live overseas. So for any of our foreign foreign listeners right now, I feel so bad for you guys that you don't get to experience what it's like to just turn on your TV and just have the football game there. Woo. And then his last, his last grudge of the season, our failure to stop Le'Veon Bell on that third touchdown. He re-ran slower than my mom, and she's 82. <laughs> Le'Veon Bell, can someone get me a Photoshop photo of him jogging into the end zone with a walker in front of him? I'd appreciate that. And then, Chris, I'll let you do the honors. The final grievance of the year comes from our friend Eric Harris. The fact that I will support this team with my last dying breath, regardless of the insanity of that statement. It's a Festivus miracle! You're damn right it is, folks, because as dark as things get, this is what we're all here for. Now, wasn't that fun? You get to laugh, you get to joke around, you get to get some of this stuff off your chest. Chris, what was your grievance for the 2016 season? If you had to pick one, what would it be? Oh, my God. I I really put zero effort into thinking of a grievance. Oh, my God. For me, maybe it's the use of Chuck Clay. And we just don't use him. <laughs> hey, I'm going to get you a great dynamic tight end, but feel free to not use him. <laughs> That's fair, because this was his first game where he, he really lived up to his expectation. Because he got the opportunities to. That's not even to say he's doing anything wrong. We're just not either A, utilizing him properly, or B, throwing him the ball when he's open. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's what it comes down to. Captain, what's your grievance? My grievance for the 2016 season is that at the end of last year, there was no urgency. There was zero urgency when it came to, hey, we're trying to come back in a football game because, let's face it, most of the games we lose, it's because at some point we're trailing. At some point we've lost the lead and we're trailing. And late in these games, you saw how many games this season came down to one score or less. Yet this team is moving on offense with zero urgency. None. Tyrod Taylor can run all over the field. The guy can bust a 40-yard run, but he doesn't know how to jog to the line of scrimmage and get a snap off in under 15 seconds. That is my grievance of the season. The guy's the fastest guy on our team outside of LaShawn McCoy, and yet he can't run to the line to snap the ball. God. Folks, it feels good to let that stuff out. Get it off your chest. Don't take that home to your families. Don't carry it around with you like excess baggage. Just get it out. And that is the spirit of Festivus. Thank you so much for showing up tonight, helping us go over all this, and just, you know, being a part of the tradition. From all of us here at the Rock Pal Report, happy holidays to all of you and your family. We'll talk to you after Christmas. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.